I'm not used to recording these. <laughs> um, but just as a kind of a recap, for those first three verses, those are really important verses. If we don't have a good sense of what those first, first three verses are telling us about the book of Revelation, we are absolutely doomed to completely confuse and misunderstand and misinterpret the book. So just as a recap, tell me some of the important things that we got out of those first three verses that we've spent time in the last couple of weeks, and then we'll... Uh, We'll uh, push push on on that, Muriel. Soon, must be soon. Okay, <laughs> one of the things that's very important is that you have two time markers in the in the first three verses. Things that must soon take place in verse one, and then the end of verse three. The time is near, and if you want to stray away from that, you get to the end of the book, and he says it again uh, about these things are going going to be be soon. And so we've asked the question, well. Uh, how soon is soon? And 2,000 years is not soon. 1,000 years is not soon. 400 years is not soon. 200 years is not soon. Uh, so you have to have this book dealing with something that is speaking to immediacy. And I think that's uh, very important for dealing with, with the book. As I mentioned in that, that does cause complications. We'll deal with those complications as, as we get on. Uh, but uh, you have to have a, 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 a time marker here that says what we're going to do through this book is going to be the time is near, things are going to happen soon. What else, Janet? Is yes. Okay. So two things there. Verse uh, is an unveiling. The first word there in verse one, a revelation. That means it's. A revealing, it is an unveiling, and so that means this book is not making things hidden, it is making things clear. It is unveiling something. So so often the book is portrayed as secret codes and hidden language and you know cloaked in these kinds of things, and actually it's quite the opposite. The the book itself says that it's going to reveal things. Um, we ask the question, do we have something in the scriptures that says it was sealed, concealed, or hidden that now is going to be unsealed or revealed or unveiled? And if so, Daniel 12. Okay, we, we do have a, a, a place in scripture at Daniel 12 you have Daniel not understanding the visions that he is seeing, and the angel says to seal up the vision until the time of the end. And he says it twice in Daniel 12, verse 4, and in Daniel 12, verse 9. And so these things are being sealed up until the time of the end. And as we go through this book, you're going to see it's the same angel who's going to uh, come back on the scene later on and you're going to see a scroll that is sealed in chapter 5 that is going to be opened finally. And so the pictures of the book of Daniel here have been concealed and now you have an unveiling or a revealing. So knowing the book of Daniel is going to be fairly important to, to this book and we're going to use Daniel a lot as we go through the book of Revelation for that. So that was one of them. Uh, Janet also brought out that these things are signs. And you see that in verse 1, and it says that it was made known uh, by sending an angel. Some translations say signify. It's the same Greek word that the Septuagint uses in Daniel 2.45, where Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar that he has 
made this known to you, O king, and that was a vision that was given. So we're seeing signs, we're seeing symbols uh, and, and pictures, and that is a very important thing for a number of reasons. One, when you start reading about dragons and beasts and stars falling and things like that, you aren't supposed to actually go outside and look for dragons and beasts and stars falling. These are symbols. These are signs. They are pointing to something, and we're trying to then determine what is the meaning of the picture, what what is being used in that. And God likes to talk like that. And Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Matthew 24, uh, book of Revelation, when God speaks about these kinds of things, one of the great things that he does is he tries to give us a visual. He tries to help us see these things rather than just say, here's what's going to happen. So you're getting visuals, you're getting signs. And if you remember, one of the things that I put forward to you as I think is an important study lens is that with that terminology, then we should presume that we are seeing signs and symbols unless something in the text demands otherwise. You know, usually when we read the scriptures, we take communication literally uh, unless something in the wording tells you otherwise. Uh, And we use that kind of thing all the time, just like in the news when they say the White House said nobody thinks that the building was talking We know that that represents the individual in the White House. So we know how to work with that, that unless something in the text demands otherwise, we take things literally. Uh, I think we do the same thing here. Since this has been made known, symbolized, signified by an angel, and we're reading about signs and symbols, we should take these things then as signs and symbols unless something in the text demands otherwise. All right. Anything else in those first three verses? I would... At least point out one more thing, Jennifer. Um, God not <coughs> Sorry, I couldn't hear all of that. God's word is not time. Yes, and I think that's important as well, is that uh, here you have, and I, what I would put on that is verse 3, uh, that this is a prophecy, and so with it being prophecy, you can be talking about things in the present and things in the future. It's not going to be bound by, by time. And sometimes that can be a struggle for people who interpret the book. They'll read things and they'll go, well, that wasn't happening yet. Well, that's okay. <laughs> it can be talking about future things. But remember, a definition of prophecy is not necessarily that you're talking about the future. What's the definition of a prophecy? God spoke it. That, that's all it is, is you are speaking the very words of God. Time is not a factor of what makes something a prophecy. So if you're speaking the very words of God, and that's what's going to happen here. Blessed is the one who reads this prophecy. John is not just having a bad dream because he ate some bad food the night before. This is prophecy. This is God-given visions that he has seen. And so he can be speaking about present events or past events or future events, just like you read with the other prophets that will talk about things that happened in the past, things that are going on in the present, things that are going on in the future. And we'll see those kinds of time markers uh, given in the book. Anything else in those first three verses? But I think those four things are really, really important. If you don't have those four things and you blow by those first three verses and you start diving into all the pictures, you're going to get lost in the weeds real quick. Okay? So we've got the time marker. We've got that it's an unveiling. We've got that it's symbolism. And we've got that it's prophecy. All right? You ready for four through eight then? All right. Let's do verse four then. Revelation 1, verse 4. 
John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right. Well, let's start going in pieces. Why don't we work with the first verse 4 and the first half of verse 5. Verse 4 and verse 5, tell me what you see, what is being communicated, what's being told to us, what's going on. Verse 4 and verse 5, what did you see in your studies? What main idea, main point, questions you had, things that, that struck you, things that confused you? Debbie? You know, I, I, my first question probably would just be the seven churches rather okay. than every church. Okay. Okay, so one of the things that is is interesting is you might not expect verse four to start the way that it does, right? Uh, You might just think, all right, let's get into this prophecy. It's a prophecy. But you'll notice it has the form of a letter, doesn't it? Who's the author? John. Who are the recipients? Seven churches of Asia. Then you have a a salutation, right? Uh, Grace to you. It's like how the apostle Paul writes, right? Paul, da 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 da, two, da 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 da, grace and peace, God from the Lord Jesus Christ, and then a blessing that's proclaimed. You like Second Corinthians, blessed be a God, Father, and Lord Jesus Christ, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Well, notice the same thing happens here as he does grace to you, and then he starts this to him who loved us and freed us. So you'll notice it takes on the form of a letter. So it's really fascinating that you have almost two genres merging together. We have prophecy. It says it's a prophecy. And it's clear as you read it, it's a prophecy. But it's also written in the form of a letter that here is John as he sends this prophecy out. He sends it out like a letter. Here's the author, John 2, seven churches of Asia. Then salutation, grace and peace from the Lord God. So it's really neat form. So I think that's a good point, uh, um, Debbie, is that obviously like all of God's letters, they are ultimately to everybody. But there was a certain set of recipients that were going to receive this letter. Now, one of the things that I think that's important is I just said to you that we're going to take everything symbolically unless the text demands otherwise. And one of the things that sometimes people will say is, well, we should take the seven churches of Asia symbolically, that when we get to chapters two and three, that these seven churches are general representations of all conditions of all churches, because seven represents, you know, your symbols. We haven't talked about symbol numbers. What does something usually represent? Like perfection and completion, right? So it represents all of the churches. So it's not really written to seven actual churches, but it's speaking to the different conditions of the seven churches that you would have throughout time, that kind of idealist approach that we talked about. Is there anything here that would tell you that we should take this literally rather than symbolically as symbolic seven churches of Asia? 
One, he names them. If we are talking generically, symbolically about seven churches, then why would you say to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Sardis, to the church at Laodicea, to the church in Smyrna, and, and go through them all? It wouldn't make sense to do that. Nor would it make sense here in, to even have this letter form. John, to the seven churches of Asia. It seems to be demanding that we take this as an actual letter and not just symbolic prophecy in general, that these were going to be given to these seven churches and chapters two and three seem to to hold that. So I want you to see that just because I do believe there are going to be times where we're going to see the book demand an actual literal explanation and not everything you see should just be ideally symbolized away into oblivion. I believe there are seven churches and these letters were written to those seven churches and those seven churches received those letters and they are talking about things that they were experiencing and things that were about to happen to them and that it's not just symbolically representing what all churches go through, which just as an aside, I would have a hard time taking those seven churches and applying symbolically those applying to all churches I'd say, okay, so of the seven, which one fits us? I uh, don't know. Uh, I don't think that works very well. Very hard to, to cram, I think, that interpretation. And I think it's just far simpler, far more natural to say, John's an actual guy, and he actually wrote to seven churches, and he's actually giving them a salutation of grace and peace. So good observation. What else do you see in the first four and verse five? What else is happening there, Charlotte? <clears throat> Well, doesn't everybody, all right? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's one of the, I mean, we haven't hardly got out of the gate and we're already stuck. It's unbelievable that we, you know, we don't get very far and here we are. You'll notice that you see that in um, verses four and five, that after you have grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth. So there are three froms, right? All right. So give me the easy one. Who's who's from grace and peace from whom? God, Father. Uh, oh, you think that's the easy one? I thought Jesus Christ was the easy one, actually. <laughs> okay. So you notice verse five says from Jesus Christ. All right. We can lock that one down. <laughs> that one's from Jesus Christ. You said God the Father. Which one gives you God the Father? Okay, where it starts. Who is and who was and is to come. And it says that in verse 8. Okay. And it says the Lord, right? <laughs> so you have that. So now we have the seven spirits. What do you all want to do with that? Well, I read something that said the seven full spirits. Okay. Know right. exactly what that means. <laughs> <laughs> right. Here's my great answer, and nobody knows what that means either. Right? It's always great when your answers only cause more confusion. That's that's a fun way to teach people. <laughs> Debbie. Well, it does the perfection. Okay. The seven again coming in, right, with that. So there are essentially two views of the seven spirits. View one, it's a way to describe the Holy Spirit. Either sevenfold spirit or the perfection, that's why the seven Holy Spirit. Or another view is it's actually seven spirits that are before the throne of God. And by the way, you'll note that we will read again of the seven spirits in chapter three 
uh, and verse 1, and if I can find it in my notes, it's chapter 4, around, uh, oh boy, where, where are you in my notes? It says, when you have to write so many things and you go sideways in your paper and you're like trying to cram it into your little paragraph and all of that. There it is, chapter 4, verse 5. There's my note, 3, 1, and 4, 5. It's going to say seven spirits again. So they'll say, it's actually seven spirits that are before the throne. Just take it as that, that there are angelic beings, spiritual beings who are before the throne. When you read Revelation 4, there's a whole lot of activity going on of spirits doing all kinds of things up there. So which one do you think? Which one, which one works for you? Which one makes sense to you and all that? <laughs> so, then, 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 sure. Just, so if Persia had this, then do do the churches have the spirit who is you know coming sure. before the Lord of their behalf? Good. Sure. So we've got all kinds of spiritual beings that are referred to in the scriptures, right? right? It's we not. Don't understand, right. It's clearly said that we don't. It is certainly not outlandish if this is referring to there are seven spiritual beings that are before the throne. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to have an argument about that. Sure, they're very well. It seems like there's an awful lot of spiritual beings and things that we don't understand. Like Daniel 10, where here's the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and there's going to be the prince of the kingdom of Greece, and the angels are dealing with all of those. And you go, okay, that's that's plausible, Julie. I think that's the problem. Right. Maybe it could be just as simple as that. Is there anybody who wants to go to the Holy Spirit side? Me. You. Okay, why? <laughs> because, because he has an awful lot to do in the Bible from the beginning. Okay, the beginning. sure. So, I mean, it's not irrelevant, the importance of the Holy Spirit, right? And the work of the Holy Spirit. and He, he, he inspired Absolutely. And that would work with chapter 3, verse 1, as well as chapter 4, verse 5, right, Evan? fact that it's mentioned as part of the sending of this message. Yeah. This isn't, uh, hey, y'all, and from the seven, people, seven spirits who happen to be here too, they say right. hey, too. There's something here about yeah. that being central part of the message being sent. Uh, and that is probably, to me, the decisive tilter is the location of the description is if you are confident in verse four that him who is, who was, and who is to come is the father, and you are confident in verse 5 that Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. And in between the Father and Jesus Christ are the words seven spirits. You know, if the name came later, I mean, not like immediately later, but I mean like much later, like chapter 3. Okay, seven spirits, I'm fine with that. But to put the description between Father and Jesus, boy, that's hard for me to wiggle out of that not being the Holy Spirit. That's, that's why I sit on speaking to the that it's the holy spirit here and it's using the threefold designation as grace to you and peace from god the father lord jesus christ and the holy spirit that's the reason why i land on that and i'll tell you that's the only reason why i don't have a problem with seven spirits before the throne and doing whatever they're doing no issue with that whatsoever but the name being sandwiched between father and son is my tilting over, and I go, that seems like that's the Holy Spirit. Nathan? Isaiah 11, verse 2, actually speaks of the Holy yep. Spirit. It speaks of seven characteristics. Of yes. It is the Holy Spirit, 
but there are seven characteristics. There are seven characteristics. When you have the Spirit of the Lord described in Isaiah 11, there are seven descriptions that are given there, and that might be the reason why uh, for the seven uh, the description of it, of it being the seven, the seven spirits here. In general, before we get into the details, why these descriptions? Just in terms of all three here, why not just say grace and peace from the Father, but instead it's who is, who was, and who is to come? And why not say grace and peace from the Holy Spirit, but why seven spirits? And why not just say and from Jesus, but it's the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. Notice everybody's got an addition, some extra adjectives, right? It's not just grace to you from Father, Son, Spirit. It's everybody's got some more tacked on. <laughs> so before we figure out the explanations of what those mean, let's just kind of back up and think, well, why? Why these descriptions? Why, why do this here, Charlotte? Okay, so the eternal nature of God in in light of what these Christians are experiencing and what this book is going to talk about uh, would certainly play a role. What are we going to read in chapters two, three and six in particular that these Christians are going through? It's it's not easy times, right? I mean, it's describing them in suffering and difficulties. The word tribulation is going to come up a few times. Uh, two times in particular in, in, in this book. Remember you have in chapter 6, you're going to read about Christians who are pictured as being under the altar, crying out for vengeance. How long till you do something about these things? So you are not getting a picture of Christians in comfort reading a book of prophecy. You're reading about Christians in tribulation and difficulty receiving a book of prophecy. Would that play into some of the descriptions that you're reading about here in regards to the Father's description, the Spirit's description, and Jesus' description? And if so, what? And what in particular about these descriptions would be useful or necessary or, or helpful to them, Muriel? Well, one would be, you know, that, that Jesus is king over all the world, Okay, so there's one really important. Here you are in the middle of difficulties. You're dealing with uh, crazy Emperor Nero or crazy Emperor Domitian or pick your crazy. They're all crazy emperors just about. It didn't take long to have crazy emperors going going on at that time. And you're dealing with these rulers. and, and, And here is this picture of Jesus Christ who rules over the kings of the earth. Well, that's comforting. It's almost like here's God saying, point your eyes a little bit higher. You know, I know what you're going through, but look higher than your prime minister, president, king, ruler, leader, to the one who rules over all human leaders and thrones and, and, and rulers. So here is the one who is actively in charge, eyes higher, it seems to be the idea. So that, I think that'd be very valuable in the midst of a persecution, right? Or in the midst of difficulty and tribulation. Dathan? I think what I saw is that these scriptures tend to point to God's attributes, whether it is his sovereignty, his omniscience, mm-hmm. his omnipotence, yeah. and so on. And in yeah. considering 
what the people are going, Christians are going through, it, 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 it points to the fact that he's in control. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, certainly one of the biggest things that, that comes up with uh, that sovereignty, who is, who was, and who is to come. He just, he's over time. He's just eternal and stands over time. The faithful witness does that, right? Does, does he see what you're going through? Is he observing? Does he know what your circumstances are? Is, is he able to know what, what's happening? He, in fact, has gone through it himself, right? So he is the faithful witness. He's gone through what, you're, what you've gone through. In fact, after saying faithful witness, what does he say about him? Firstborn of the... All right. Well, what are we indicating with that? Okay, so it's not just simply, and he died and you're going to die. But here's that trailblazer pioneer imagery. He's gone the road you're going through. He sees what you have gone through as a witness to these things. And he is firstborn of the dead. He has attained that status and exaltation through death into resurrection, which is going to be really important because it is going to talk about these Christians dying. And so what's the comfort? He's over the kings. He sees what you're going through. He's walked that path. He was executed and he was raised and exalted. And so grace to you and peace. From the one who has been through all of those. Mike, did you have your hand there? No, I just, uh, probably one of the most common factors in overcoming a trial is, is hope. Yeah. And he's instilling a whole bunch of hope here. Just stay focused. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and why I think it makes sense to bring in these particular attributes. You know, you could come up with all kinds of attributes for God. The Son and the Spirit, right? So there's a reason for choosing these. And, so, you know, it doesn't say, you know, Jesus, you know, the, the light. He, he goes with faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, uh, who is, who was, who is to come. Seven spirits, this fullness and completion of, of everything that's going on. Nothing is out of his range or out of his sight. He is above these things. He sees all these things. I think there's, there, there's a, a, a beauty uh, in, in that, that he sees your suffering, he sees your martyrdom, and he's with you through the, that tribulation. All right. Other thoughts about these descriptions that are, that are given here. But when you note that all of them have adjectives, maybe the seventh isn't as distressing after all. Because nobody just gets a straight name. Everybody has a, a, a description to him uh, to try to communicate something that I think is is uh, very, very hopeful uh, in, in that. Yes, Matt. Uh, just it, it reminds me of authority and strength. Yeah. And on top of that, when, when you read this, it reminds me of watching some of the old time uh, kings being introduced. Lord of Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Major solid yeah. encouragement, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I, I think that's that's the intent of these pictures of why using that. And so to hear with those images saying to these recipients, grace and peace to you. I know what you're going through. Know what you're experiencing. I know what's about to happen to you. That's the book's going to talk about that. I know what's going to happen to you. But I'm above all of that. I see all of that. I'm going to get you through all that. And you're going to come through it just like Jesus came through it all. Faithful witness, firstborn of the dead. So have your eyes upward in, in all of that. So it, it immediately is boosting, I think, that encouraging, positive message. Julie? I like how Mike pointed out the photo of the book because I never thought of these Absolutely. And I think that's the intent is right out of the gate. Tremendous hope is infused in observing the character of God. And, and, and that's what God always is doing is saying, you can have hope if you know who I am, right? Focus on my attributes, see who I am, and that's going to get you through this. And so what a way to start the book. Um, what about uh, the second half of verse five, as well as verse six, because now we've got uh, some more messages, some more important uh, things declared here. And quite a few things are, are spoken of about uh, Jesus as our faithful witness and firstborn. Charlotte? I was going to say that's exactly what uh, God told the Israelites to make him out of Egypt. Okay. Yeah, verse 6 might sound strange. Made us a kingdom and priests. But that happens a few times in the scriptures. In Exodus 19, uh, we're told there in verses 5 and 6 that God called Israel out of slavery to be a kingdom of priests. And when you come to Isaiah 61 and verse 6, as Isaiah looks forward to a restoration and a new hope and a new time, he's talking about a new group of people, you know, side point, us, who are going to be a kingdom of priests. And you might remember First Peter, he writes about that similarly and talks about being spiritual stones that are built up and offering these spiritual sacrifices or the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 and verse 1 that you are offering yourselves, your bodies as living sacrifices that we stand as priests of God. So here is this picture of an arrival of a kingdom in which we participate as priests in that. And perhaps not the point right here, but I'd like to certainly bring it up. If you think about Israel's role as priests, and think of it not in terms of just the actual Levitical priesthood, but there in Exodus 19, he calls the whole nation a kingdom of priests. So what was Israel's role? What were they, what were they supposed to be doing as priests of God? Okay, so a, this priesthood idea is you bring the people to God and God comes to the people there, right? That's what the priests are doing is they're that, that in between. You're bringing the people to God. You represent the people as, as, as the priest, but you're also the place where God is coming down and meeting his people. That's a very important picture for us when the scriptures say, 
You're a kingdom of priests. What's your role? But to be the place where people see God and come and meet God. You're supposed to take on that role. That's your activity. He made us to be a kingdom of priests. So remember, how did Israel do with that? Yeah. What, what, what were the Gentiles doing because of Israel? Blaspheming God, right? That was the whole point is that Isaiah has to come along and say, I'm going to have to fix this because rather than you being a light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth like you were supposed to be, the nations are blaspheming God. And so he's going to then promise his son to be able to accomplish that. But Isaiah 42 and talking about that and Isaiah 49 also is referencing us in that process. So we are participating in that. So that's a very important uh, picture of who we are, a purpose statement. We're a kingdom of priests. What else in verses 5 and 6 do you see that has been affected for us in Christ or given to us or is happening, Charlotte? And we have to take advantage of his blood. Okay. Um, verse 5 has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's a great picture. I love the imagery of slavery is there, right? Freed, you've been set free from from sins is, is, is a great image. And that's been accomplished by his blood. So see what you have in Christ. There is freedom in Christ. You have been set free in that. So that's a neat picture. What else do you see? What a way to start off. Here we were just talking about God sees your condition, what you're going through. Have your eyes upward. Know that he's gone through what you're going through. He's been put to death, raised from the dead. And then the very next line of verse 5 is, to him who loves us. That's great. That's, that's great stuff right there, Evan. I like that it's in the present tense for the next verse. Other verse, the next part is that we're mm-hmm. kind of this. We often link it as he loved us and died for us. But John says he loves us. Continuing. Continuously. And has, yes. And has died for us. And I like the past tense too. Made us a kingdom. Yes. It is important. Yeah, great observation that you have to him. It's not who loved us past tense, but still continuing to love us, who loves us. And through that has freed us and made us a kingdom of priests. So what a great hope is given there. You know who you are. You know you have Christ's love. You know that you're a kingdom. You know you've been set free through his blood. And so you have those great, great images there and how useful and encouraging that would have been in that time as they would have received these letters. Anything else in those descriptions there? We've got loved us. We've got freed us. We've got made us. How does that round out? Right, we always have to then turn around and go to the praise of his glory, essentially. And so you have that picture given there at the end of verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We don't use that word dominion much. So give me some thesaurus here. Power, what else works with dominion? Rule. Authority. Reign. So again, notice that eyes upward. To him be glory, and he's got all power, all authority, all rule, dominion. He's in charge. He's got this. It's under his watch, and he's in control. So what a great way to round that out. He loved us. He freed us. He made us. And he's got 
glory and authority uh, and, and power. Great kickoff to this, this picture. All right. Anything else through verse six before we get to verse seven? There's no way I'll get all of verse seven done in whew, seven minutes. Good luck. Well, this will be a, probably a partial. Mike. And I understand your background as to why, right? You know, if you have a have a background of of a different mentality, particularly if you have like a uh, Catholic background of people who walk around saying your sins are forgiven, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, <laughs> not sure you have the ability to do that. That's why Exodus 19 is really important as the connector, because when when God tells Israel, "You're a kingdom of priests," does that mean all of Israel is walking around uh, forgiving the sins of Gentiles? No, <laughs> that's that's not the the imagery. There's only one who can forgive sins. So clearly declared in the New Testament, only God can can forgive sins. No human being can do that. When we're called to be priests, that's not what we're doing. We are not going around making atonement for people or having them confess their sins to us. That's not the picture. The picture is Exodus 19, being a light to the nation so that people see God. And come to him. You're supposed to be the connection to bring God to the people and bring the people to God. You're that that emissary. That's the priest image. And in that way, everyone in Christ is a priest. But when we're talking about atonement, there's only one high priest. And who sits on the throne eternally, who makes intercession for us. Clearly Christ and Christ alone. So we have to be careful that we're using... There are two different images of what a priesthood looks like, and we don't want to confuse them together because it's clear forgiveness is only can come from God and no place else. So I'm glad you made up that point because you're right, Mike. If you walk around saying I'm a priest, is that going to be understood by people? No. <laughs> you're going to have to give a whole lot of clarification about what, what you mean by that. But we should know for ourselves that's our purpose. We should know that's what we've been called to. And while I'm not going to walk around and say, hi, I'm Priest Brent, because that's going to be completely confused. Uh, I know that's my role, as is your role, too, to bring people to God and to show God to the people. Great, great picture. Charlotte? That's right. And, and, and the scriptures are clear. Humans can't do anything about atonement. Our blood's no good. Animal blood's no good. We need we need God. No, only God can solve can solve the problem. Matt? To Mike's point, you know, when we think about 
priests are ambassadors, so to speak. And yeah. When we're out evangelizing, yeah. we have to understand where we're at today yeah. in the world. It's as if you know our kids they see rainbow flags, right? And they're being brought up in a in a day and age to where it's about homosexuality and the beauty of homosexuality. Sure. Meanwhile, the rainbow to us is faith and hope and. and Everything along those lines. Covenant, yeah. So we have to, when we're out there, we have to understand the, the verbiage that we're using sure. when we're sharing the Word of God and, and what people might interpret that sure. as. That's right. So, I mean, yeah, what we understand is what they understand. And we have to always be aware of that, right? Yeah. I think that's part of when Jesus did the limited commission we talked about uh, a few weeks back about uh, being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You have to be nimble in your culture and understand what you're working with and understand what people are hearing and understand what you're saying and understand how to bridge that gap and make that communication. And I think that's like one of the things that we talked about um, last week and now in our Bible classes. You know, the Bible study that we had is how we're approaching different things in love and yeah. everything along those lines. So I think it, it's important for each of us to always understand who we're speaking with. And that's right. It, 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 it should be um, presumably obvious <laughs> that we would care about how other people hear what we say, right? I mean, communication fails if the other person doesn't understand your intent. I mean, what's the point of talking if I'm going to use words that aren't going to communicate what I intend? <laughs> right? There's this communication 101. There is a transmitter and there is a receiver. <laughs> this is 101. So if you're not thinking about how they're hearing what you're saying, that's a, a tragic fail. And yet sometimes we can do that. We can just go, well, I've got the word of God and here's what it says. And you're not thinking about how people are hearing that. They're not, they're not catching that. You do have to be thoughtful about that and be wise about that and understand, well, what are they seeing? What are they hearing? What does that mean to them? Uh, and, and work within that ability to communicate to them. And I, I think that's very important. So, uh, and backgrounds matter. And that's, I think Mike bringing that up is important because to one person you say that and go, oh, yeah, that's great. And another person you say that and go, what? That's heresy. <laughs> so what, you have to be careful. What does that ultimately look like to be uh, a, a priest of God, but there's such a beauty in thinking about your role as that. It doesn't that change your perspective of how you look at God and look at the world. If you see yourself as a kingdom of priests who are supposed to be bringing God to the people and people to God. I mean, that's a, a great visual of what, what ultimately we're here for, what, what it's all about. Anything else there, Debbie? Sure. People couldn't, I guess, pray to God. Yeah. Right. And so I always took that priest thing to mean that we can, we are have that blessing of being able to pray to God. Sure. So there is that aspect of priest as well. We know that the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Absolutely. But I mean, like a priest. Right. 
Interestingly, though, you don't read anywhere in the Old Testament where, where God says, nobody pray to me and you just go ask a priest to pray for me. You, you don't have that. So uh, that's kind of more of a, a modern construct that's, that's come along of needing another human being, which doesn't make any sense. Why would I need another human being to stand between me and God? They, they can't do any better than me. <laughs> We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, I'm not any higher than you. The only thing I've got is whatever the three inches of this you know, podium are, but I'm not any higher or closer to God than you are. So another human isn't, isn't functional in that. But as you're talking about our ability to reach people, pray for people, help people, that is that functional role that, that, that's given to us. So I think that's important to think about. Muriel? Yeah. Yeah, I don't need anybody else. I don't need anybody else in between. Is, is, is Christ sufficient for it? Of, of course he is, right? Of course he is. And so that's, that's ultimately all we need. All right, well, that puts us out of time. So let, let me hold off on verse 7 rather than starting that. Verse 7 is perhaps a little bit more complicated than you might think. I did load you down with a number of scriptures uh, in your workbook, which, by the way, if you have your workbook, under question five, and as we go through these workbooks, if you ever find a typo, please tell me, because I found one right here. Under question five, it says Matthew 24, 39 through 31. That obviously makes no sense. <laughs> so 29 to 31 makes a whole lot more sense than 39 to 31, so I'll, I'll update that. Uh, but look at those passages, and as we've been talking about, if you can observe what that symbol meant in its original context, you can bring that meaning forward into the book of Revelation. So how was it used uh, in Zechariah and Daniel and in Matthew? And we'll bring it forward and talk about it in Revelation 1. It's not as simple as just, hey, every eye will see him. Okay, great. There's a, a very important meaning to that. And it's a quotation from the Old Testament and it is communicating something. So we'll look at verses seven through eight and we will move forward into the next section, verses uh, I don't know, 9 to 16 maybe? Who knows? It's up, to, it's up to you guys. Yeah, I know you're laughing at me. We won't get far. 15-minute break. We'll reconvene at 1030 for our next hour. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it.